0: Our second oldest daughter, Jody, uh, who many of you know, she serves in children's ministry here now. Uh, She's always been a truth teller and uh, she continues to be a truth teller, but she's learned a little bit more tact uh, as she's gotten uh, a little bit older. Uh, When she was two or three years old, I remember we were living at Abbotsford at that time and we were at a Wendy's and this was in the time when you could still smoke in a restaurant. Uh, Most of us don't remember that if you're under a certain age, but you actually could do that still at this time. And so I was sitting in Wendy's, and uh, I was sitting here at this table. Uh, Little Jody, two or three years old, was sitting there at that table, and there was a guy behind me at the next table by himself, and he was having a meal, and he was smoking a cigarette. And um, Jody gets up on her chair, and she stands up, and she points at him, and she says, that is going to kill you. And I just kind of turned around, and I looked at him, and I shrugged my shoulders. I said, "I'm, I'm sorry. And and he goes, no, no, that's fine. She's probably right. I mean, what do you say to a two-year-old? I also had a friend who, another true story, who many years ago, he was traveling and he was engaging with some other young adults who he didn't know, but he was, for whatever reason, he was compelled to share some of his faith story. And so he he was telling them about his faith, and I don't know exactly how the Uh, interaction went but as he was doing that it kind of turned on him in a way and these young adults started to almost harass him and actually uh, give him a really hard time about his faith and about what he was trying to share with them even to the point where it actually kind of almost got abusive in some way and uh, so my friend was pretty caught off guard he was getting frustrated angry didn't know what to do and so he says to them literally he says you can go to hell and he walks away and they were like so caught off guard by this statement that they, they didn't actually know what to do. And so it sort of ended the altercation and my friend uh, went off and just sort of got out of there. One of those guys a little bit later actually came and found him and apologized to him. And it was interesting because my friend asked him, so what, why did you come and you know, apologize to me or what made you do that? And his comment was, he says, I've actually never had anybody tell me that I can go to hell and actually meant it. And so it was kind of a disturbing moment in this guy's life. And so these stories are just sort of reflections of, you know okay, there are some ways that we can learn to engage with people in our culture. Um, and, and the question is, is, how is it that we speak truth into people's lives in a way that actually engages them and makes an impact in a meaningful way? And I'm not necessarily holding these up as the epitome of what we do, but they're examples of different ways that we can do that. Especially as we live in an age now that we know is uh, more often uh, resisting the whole idea of absolute truth, that there would be absolute truth. And so how do we engage and actually lead people or engage with people in conversations around issues where uh, there is truth to be said and truth to be shown? Um, And how do we do that? Some people, some of you are more wired as black and white people. You, You just see things much more black and white. Other people are more wired Uh, to be comfortable living in the gray and kind of can see both sides of things and and nuance things and so on. And so I think a lot of it has to do with our personality uh, and how we're wired. But for some people, the black and white people often think, well, if we just spoke the truth more and just kind of declared it right out front, then that would just be uh, far better. But we know that that can often cause a lot of hurt and pain and not lead us to good places. And the discernment and the wisdom that's needed is to know what is needed in the moment. And sometimes it is a more difficult word. Sometimes it is a softer approach. And we need much wisdom to know how to engage with people. If, if we were to just, I mean, just imagine the world for a minute, and I think there's a movie about this uh, as well too, but where you just sort of spoke the truth all the time. Like whatever is going on in your mind, you just sort of, sort of declared it out there. Uh, I mean, you would probably cause carnage in all your relationships. Just sort of declaring to people, you know what, you're fat, you need to lose about 20 pounds, you're very greedy, you know, you are all about you, you're totally self-centered, you know, you're just very materialistic. I mean, that wouldn't go very well. So sometimes even though something might be true, it actually doesn't need to be said or we need to think about better ways to say things. And so as we're in this series on exile and some of the opportunities in exile, what I want us to think about today is how do we actually engage people with truth? How do we actually engage people in a culture where the issues are so complex and so difficult and so challenging? And what is the role of, of tact and wisdom and just faithfulness and faithful presence in people's lives? And we're going to see that through the story of Daniel today. Well, last week, uh, Spencer spoke on Daniel chapter 2, and he One of his primary points was this idea that we are called to remember to remember, meaning to remember some of the very key themes that are throughout Daniel that we also see throughout the course of history, that even though God sometimes seems very absent and silent, that God is present, that God is faithful, and that God is in control. And so to remember to remember that these things are true, even in times in our lives and situations that we face where it doesn't feel like That might be true, but that is really evident uh, throughout history, and we see that throughout the book of Daniel, including in the chapters three and six that we're going to look at today. So, we've been talking again about this theme of opportunity and exile, with the premise that we, as a a nation of Canada, are increasingly moving towards uh, a, a less Christian kind of posture, where we don't, the Christian values and a Christian worldview is not the dominant or the predominant uh, context or framework that people think through. And so how do we, if we are a follower of Jesus, how do we actually engage with our culture in a way that is helpful and uh, appropriate? Now we know that in many ways we, we still live in a, a lot of, with a lot of privilege in terms of uh, here in Canada. So even for instance this building that sits here in Saskatoon on this land has a tax-exempt status because of being a church building. That's part of that privilege that we still have as a Christian culture. So, there are many things in our culture still today that allow us or show us that we still have a considerable uh, privilege as well. But we are increasingly living in an age that is post Christian, that is moving in that direction more and more. And if you were here two weeks ago, I, I talked about two different events on Capitol Hill in Ottawa that showed a really stark difference between an event in 1967 versus an event in 2001, where the first event had many uh, prayers that were recited and said. There was scripture that was read even by the Prime Minister of Canada at that time. There was even a call to response of, of actually the people in that, in that audience there to respond in a way of giving themselves again, dedicating themselves to God. Uh, and so in 2001, the contrast was similar Kind of gathering for different reasons, but it was remarkably different. No prayer said, no scripture read, no clergy had a chance to speak, and just a really, really different context. You also may have seen a CBC News article just last week that talked about all of the church buildings or religious buildings, religious spaces that are being closed and are uh, planned to be closed. And the, the article talked about in the next couple of years about 9,000 different religious buildings or church buildings that will be closed, torn down, or repurposed. Um, that's about a third of the 27-some-thousand church buildings that are existing in Canada. It's a pretty sobering statistic. And, and the reason for that is because congregations are sh- are shrinking. There's rising maintenance costs. A lot of these buildings are really uh, expensive to to keep up with, and so they are closing at an unprecedented rate. So I just want us to understand, on the one hand, that this reality is there, that we are moving towards a context. We are increasingly a post-Christian nation in many ways, and we cannot assume that Christian values or understanding or even understanding the biblical story is something that is there or prevalent for people that we interact with. Now, it's not fully true either to say that we are totally in exile. I don't think that's an accurate statement because uh, if you look at the exile of of the Hebrews in Babylonia that we are reading about in Daniel, it was a brutal era of children that were murdered, of families that were destroyed, of homes that were torn down, of people being put in oppressive conditions, and so we are not in that place. There are people in parts of the world who are experiencing that, but here in Canada, That's not our reality, but we're moving more and more in that direction of having uh, physical experiences and emotional experiences, experiences, uh, politically, of moving uh, more and more into that reality of exile. So one of the things that, for me, I've been wrestling with is how do we actually help uh, people engage this series and understand it more, Um, and so how do we feel it a little bit more? So I'm going to, I want to do a simple exercise with you. Give me grace. Bear with me. Um, this will be fine, and it's relatively painless. But I want you to do... What I want you to do is I want you to uh, partner with somebody, like just sort of connect with somebody who's sitting either in a row in front of you or behind you. Don't do it yet, but let me explain more. So what I want you to do is if you're as an individual, as a single person, you can be one unit yourself, or if you're with a group of friends together, you can decide on who's a unit there. You might be a couple. You might be a family Uh, You decide what your sort of unit is, that's fine. And then your unit of people, uh, whether it's one or more, will connect with another unit that is in a row in front of you or behind you. And then I'm going to give you the next instruction. So I want you to stand up, and I want you to just connect with somebody in a row in front of you or behind you and just sort of identify who your unit is and just say hello. Okay, so now I'm going to assume that you've identified... Who your group is, whether it's one or more people, and who that other group is. Okay, so now what you're going to do is a very simple exercise. It's a game that I'm trusting all of you or most of you have played, and it's simply called Rock, Paper, Scissors. And the game is, if you don't know the game, it's like one, two, three. You just go one, two, three, and you're either a rock or a paper, or sorry, paper or scissors. And you know that rock, you know, beats scissors, right? Paper covers rock, and scissors cut paper. So one of them always wins. If you get the same one, you just have to go again. You have one game to play. So have one designate from your group play with the other people. There's no participation awards here. There is a winner and a loser in one game. Okay? Go. Determine a winner and a loser. Okay? Now I'm going to assume that you've identified a winner and a loser. Now here's the deal. You may have been here in the past over the years where I have done, I have called us to go on a 50-foot missions trip and that you might meet somebody else in this sanctuary who is different than you and a whole new world will open up. Today, because of our series, I am sending you on a 50-foot exile trip, meaning whoever won rock, paper, scissors can stay right where you are. You are the oppressor. Whoever lost rock, paper, scissor, you are the one being sent into exile, which means that you have to go 50 feet in one direction, forward, backwards. Exile, for those down here, is really up there. For those in the balcony, it might be down, I don't know. You don't have to do that, but you can move sideways. But the loser needs to move 50 feet, pick up your unit, your family, whatever, and I'll wait, away you go. Okay, oppressors, oppressors. As people are coming into your area from exile, greet them, say hello, say welcome, be friendly. (laughs) Give them a seat. Okay, everybody find a seat. Find a seat wherever you are. We'll keep going. Okay, thank you so much for engaging me in that. Um, But here's the thing. So there is the physical reality of exile of actually just having to move 50 feet and go somewhere where you didn't want to sit. And now you're sitting somewhere there. But then there's that thing internally, right? There's that stuff that was going on inside of you when I had you do this. Some of you are really mad at me. And you're like, Bruce, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? I hate this. I just got settled in. I have kids here. I have all my bags here. I just put my coffee down. Okay? Some of you are going to be you know, mad, or you're still mad at me. You know? yep. Some of you will be mad at me for the rest of the week. I'm okay with that. I can handle it. But the point is, is that that little bit of whatever was kind of going on inside of you is like this much, this much of kind of a sense of that internal feeling of exile, okay? And so the point of it is just to simply have something that helps you understand in a little bit different way and maybe hopefully a fun way of some of what we're talking about with exile. For those of you who are, were the exiled ones and had to move, you can be just confident that you will get way more out of this series than the oppressors who didn't move, so you can feel good about that, and that'll be uh, helpful as well. So, here's the other thing that we want you to understand as we go through this series of exile, is that exile itself is not all bad. And in fact, uh, there are so many opportunities that we have in exile, and it could be argued that the church has the potential to have its most relevant impact and influence when it's actually pushed to the margins. And if you look at the course of history, and you see uh, throughout the centuries where Christian faith and Christendom has been the dominant framework, the dominant worldview, even politically has been where governments have declared that they are Christian governments and so on, and all kinds of things like that have occurred, you can see that there have been also many abuses and many hypocrisies that have come through those eras as well. I mean, just think back to the Crusades hundreds of, or thousands of years ago. Think back to even residential school system and things that were done in the name of Christ or in the church. And, and there are many different things that you can look at where when the Christian values uh, are in the dominant role, it hasn't always been a great story. And so it could be argued that this posture, reality, condition of exile could be our greatest moment as a church of saying how could we actually really engage the culture in new ways that can have a significant impact and so even though pushing against some of the changes in our culture and in our laws and so on can be an important thing to do our our role is not to simply clamor back and claw back and to demand that we have school or prayer back in our schools Our our role, I think, is more so that we would actually become people of prayer, of really significant prayer. And maybe our our role isn't so much that that we push really hard and, and clamor for legislating morality, but maybe it's more important that we actually are really moral people who live out a holiness that is embedded in our culture every day by every follower of Jesus in our culture in a way that can radically change. Where people start to see our faith and to understand our faith in a way that they haven't seen before. The story of Daniel reminds us that here is an individual who is living a life of faith embedded in a a culture where he is in exile. And as you look at the story of Daniel, even today as we go into chapter 6, you realize that he has been in exile in Babylon for decades and decades and decades. And actually is becoming an old man in exile. And and so Daniel's story is one of being embedded in a culture for a long period of time. And he was somebody who worked hard, who had respect of those who were in leadership, who gained trust with those who were around him. And he lived a life of faithfulness and of holiness in a very unique way. He understood and discerned where to draw the lines and where he would not compromise. And, And we don't know, but we can only imagine all the ways that he was more fully embedded that you might say, well, was he compromising? I don't know. But he was engaged in this Babylonian culture very intimately. So if you look back just for a minute at Daniel 2, we remember that the king had asked uh, his astrologers and sorcerers, and they used a number of different names there, to not only interpret his dream, but first of all, tell him what his dream was. So King Nebuchadnezzar had called these people into his room, and they said, no, no, no we actually can't do that. That's way too hard. Nobody can do that we can't tell you what your dream was. And then so the king was going to put them all to death. And he said, none of you are any good if you can't do that. And so Daniel and his friends were actually part of that group. And so they too were going to be put to death because these ones that were in front of King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't answer his question. And then Daniel hears about this, that this command has gone from the king to kill all of these people of which he was part of. And he goes to the commander named Arioch. And it says this in Daniel 2 at the end of verse 14. It says that Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Interesting line. How Daniel spoke to Arioch with wisdom and tact. And then Daniel, as we know the story from last week, that Daniel saves the day. He tells the king what his dream was. He interprets the dream. And, And then Nebuchadnezzar puts him in a high position along with all his friends as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also given positions of authority throughout the land. Now, I, told, I spoke earlier about, you know, there's different ways that we can speak harsh truth to people and that looks and feels a lot different at times. And sometimes we quote that line in First in Peter chapter 3 where it says, always be ready to give an answer. And we just sort of use that catchphrase, hey, always be ready to give an answer. We think we have to be ready to give an answer with some really pointed hard truth uh, to people. And they need to hear this. Well, sometimes that might be true. But that whole text actually says this in 1 Peter 3, 15. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's very similar to what it was said of Daniel, that he spoke with wisdom and with tact. And so here it says, When somebody asks you, it says, Be prepared. Be prepared to give an answer. An answer when somebody asks you about, hey, what is this hope that you have? And to do so with gentleness and respect. A little over, about a year ago, last year sometime, I was in a situation where I was interacting with this person who uh, was close to me through family connections and, and uh, has grown up in a context that was very difficult in terms of religious background. It was very oppressive in many ways, and her experience with anything that Christian faith was uh, just something to keep at a distance, and it came with a lot of pain for her. But then, about a year ago, I was having an opportunity to interact with her and her husband, and had the most fascinating conversation for an entire evening. As she said to me, She said, You know, I've been watching you for 25 years, and there's something different about your life. And she asked me the question. How do you have faith? And we had a conversation around that throughout the course of the whole evening. And it strikes me that Daniel continually has these opportunities where he is invited into places where he can speak, where he is invited into places where he has gained some trust, where he will not compromise his holiness, but now he can actually engage with the leaders of that culture and speak into the context that he's been asked to speak into. And just listen again to Peter when he's teaching the church that he's writing to in the New Testament uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he's saying to them, here's how you live in exile. And he's pointing to them as living in exile too, and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they Accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, in that text, it's talking about, you know, abstain from sinful desires. Live a life of holiness so that people notice that, that they see that, and that they would glorify God. Thirteen, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. So we hear, see right here in this text in Peter what Daniel is facing. It's this tension of how do I live under the authority of the emperor or the king or the ruling authorities of that day and live in such a way that is honorable, that shows respect to that, but living in the tension of God's kingdom versus this human kingdom. So let's look briefly at chapter 3 of Daniel. It's really in many ways about uh, who has authority. Daniel chapter 3 is, is a, a story and a context where it's the who has authority. Is it God or is it this human kingdom power? Daniel chapter 3 actually doesn't have Daniel mentioned in it at all. It's just his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here are these three friends who are living a life of integrity and faith. And what happens is, is that King Nebuchadnezzar, and I find him as a character so fascinating in this story. I mean, he is so fickle. He is so insecure. He is so all over the place. One minute he is praising Daniel's God, and the next minute he's doing what we see here where he actually builds this massive statue of gold, and he calls people to worship it. And so he's calling people to bow down to this statue. And Daniel's friends who, as you see at the end of chapter 2, they had actually been given privilege and authority, but now they are put in this awkward spot. They don't compromise, and uh, they refuse to bow down. They declare their trust in God, and they say, you know what, God will rescue us, and even if he doesn't. That famous line in Daniel chapter 3. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to this idol. So King Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace, and God rescues them. It even implies in the story that God joins them and is with them in the furnace, because Nebuchadnezzar notices right away that he says, didn't we just throw three people in there? Now there's four. I see four figures walking around. And it's like the presence of God is there with them, and King Nebuchadnezzar is so astounded that he, he calls them out. And he says, come out, come out. And they come out, and it shows that not a hair on their head is singed. And then there's that, even that line that I've always loved in this story that it says that, that they didn't even smell like smoke. It was like, it was so unmistakable that God was in control, that God was in charge, that God had authority. And so what happens? Nebuchadnezzar praises their God again and says, this is the one true God, and he makes this decree and he says that anyone who speaks against their God, in fact, uh, will be cut into pieces and their houses will be torn down and destroyed. This guy's a little erratic. Okay? But that's what he declares. And then if you look at chapter 6, and even as the, the, the video shows us how chapter 3 and chapter 6, they're paired together. And the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and now the, in the fiery furnace, and now the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But Daniel chapter 6 is, in my mind, is, is really about, it gives us this picture of Daniel as kind of settling down into this territory, finding favor with God, and, and living a life that is, is blameless in so many ways. So now King Nebuchadnezzar is dead. This is many, many decades later. His son Belshazzar has been killed. Daniel again has found favor with the king by interpreting great dreams. He's been given a, a purple robe. He's been given gold chain. He's been actually appointed to the third highest position in the kingdom. He's a man of tremendous influence in the kingdom. And again, this is many years later. Some commentators say that Daniel is probably around 80 years old here at this point. So the empire of Babylon has now fallen, and so that empire is gone. And now the empire of Persia has risen up. And now Darius the Mede is now in control. And as as we look at chapter 6, you realize that Daniel in many ways is living and doing what the prophet Jeremiah said on behalf of God where as we've talked about in the weeks prior that, that well-known passage Jeremiah 29:11 how God has plans for you plans to prosper you not to harm you and how that's written to a people in exile and about how 70 years you'll be in this place and if you go earlier in Jap- in Jeremiah 29 it says here's how you live in exile this is what God says to the people build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce marry and have sons and daughters Find wives for your son. Give your daughters in marriage. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried into exile. And in so many ways, that's what Daniel has done. He has been living decades in Babylon and he has settled in. He has become part of this culture. But he has been this quiet, faithful witness of integrity, of holiness that has been embedded in this culture for all these years. And he keeps finding favor with people in positions of authority. He keeps getting opportunities to speak into situations, whether it's interpreting dreams or other things. So much so that it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel, by the way he lived, by his integrity, just so... um, lived such a blameless life that this was his story. He continued to build influence, trust, and find favor. And so these other individuals who were like him, they were quite jealous. They wanted to take him down. And so it says in that chapter that they actually looked for things that they could blame him for. They looked for places and ways that they could trap him. And it says in Daniel 6, verse 4, at the end of verse 4, they could find no corruption in him. Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. But the only thing that they knew that they could trap him in was who he would worship. And so they convinced Darius the Mede to put out this declaration that if anybody worships anyone or anything other than him as the king, they would be put to death. And Darius the Mede goes along with it. And then they show him the trap and say, yeah, yeah. Now, Daniel is one who isn't praying to you, and so you need to do what you said you're going to do. What's interesting is Darius the Mede doesn't want to kill Daniel. He's actually grown quite fond of him. He trusts him. He respects him, but he has to follow through. And so he has Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and God protects him. And the next morning, uh, Darius the Mede, he goes and he sees if Daniel's okay and he's so excited when Daniel is safe and he takes these other individuals and he has them and their wives and their children thrown into the lion's den and it says how that the lions attacked them and devoured them before they even hit the ground. To make the very clear point that these lions weren't just sleepy or drugged or had just been fed, but that in fact this was truly the hand of God. So Daniel, he continues his patterns of prayer And he pays a price. But God rescues him and saves him from these lions. And once again, Daniel prospers. The story of Daniel shows us so many things. It shows us the fickleness of individual leaders. The insecurity, I think, of some of these kings. It shows us also the vulnerability of human kingdoms. Because even in the lifetime of Daniel, there were a number of human kingdoms that were all torn down, that were all fallen down. And Daniel continues to have perseverance, favor, and impact. And so it shows us the power of embedded holiness where Daniel lives embedded in this culture and he knows where to draw the line and where to immerse himself in the culture. It shows the power of living with wisdom and tact as Daniel did. It shows the power of quiet and consistent faithfulness. Not separated from the culture but actively engaged in the culture. And in a very similar way, this is our call as well. As we live in a time of feeling like we are more and more in exile, we are called to live in a very similar way also. I want to share with you to close just two different ways of thinking about it uh, that might be helpful. And one of them, the first one, is this slide that that kind of reflects a little bit more of a Christian culture. And I've talked about this as we've addressed other issues in the life of the church and in our, our, our cultural context But this might be helpful when you think about, okay, one of the first things as you engage with people is, you may not consciously ask this question, but what's going on is, is the question of authority is first and foremost. So it doesn't matter what cultural issue you're talking about, you can pick any one of them. But the first question that really surfaces very quickly is, what has authority in your life? And so as a believer, a believer would say that that the Bible, Scripture, has authority in my life. God's design for how he's created us has authority in my life. So think of it as a fork in the road. So one fork in the road goes this way of the authority in my life is God and Scripture. Now if you continue down that road, let's continue down that path for a little bit. The the next thing, even if you agree on that that has authority, is you ask the question, well, what does the Bible say? And how do we interpret the Bible? How do we understand what the Bible says in this particular issue? And then if we can kind of land that one and have understanding about that, then we go to the next level of interpretation or discernment, which is application. If that's what the Bible says, then how do we live? How do we actually address this issue? And there are thousands and thousands. The issues are endless in terms of the social issues and cultural issues that we face. But that's that's a path that goes down the fork of if we believe the Bible has authority. Let's go down the other fork for a minute, where we go, okay, the Bible doesn't have authority in our life, which is most of our interactions in our culture. Now, how do we engage with our culture? I think it was David Fitch uh, in his book, Faithful Presence, who who talks about this and I've heard this from others as well too and it's a helpful way to think about it where the christian faith and living in a post christian culture scripture god has no authority in people's lives how do we engage well it starts with blessing it starts with actually being people of blessing and how do we bring the love of god to the lives of people around us now some people don't like that because they think well we're compromising i mean we're not we got to speak truth to people but, but God called Abraham to bring the blessing of God to the nations of the earth. That was the call right in, in Genesis chapter 12. And so we start by bringing blessing to people. That's what Daniel did. And then as we bring blessing to people, what happens is that they start to trust you and you start to gain trust in, in terms of your interactions and your relationships with people. And then as people trust you more, what happens is they actually invite you to speak into their lives and they give you authority to speak truth into their lives with really pointed questions. Like, how do you have faith? And so sometimes it takes a lot of years of actually gaining trust with people and in situations where that authority is not now demanded or on the front end, but that authority is actually given by another to actually speak into your life because they trust you and they see the evidence of irrelevant faith that they invite and they go, okay, I want to ask you some questions. And so may God give us the ability to be people of perseverance, people of faith, people of embedded holiness in all of our contexts. That's the beauty of the church. Every one of you are in contexts that nobody else here in the room is in. Every one of us has opportunities of influence and and of of impact that, that nobody else here in the room has opportunities for. But if God can transform our hearts and so that when people ask that we are ready with an answer for the hope that we have because we've been asked and we've been invited in. And may God give us uh, the words of testimony and a life of testimony that can make a difference like Daniel did. I want to invite the worship team up and I want to just uh, conclude in prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray together? So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for these incredible stories uh, and accounts in history like Daniel that remind us again of the way you've interacted in the world and in people's lives. And Lord, I pray for each one here, whether they are somebody who has been a follower of Christ for many years or maybe it's somebody here who doesn't know you and is still trying to figure this out and doesn't know where they are in, in faith and understanding you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would show us your goodness so that we can begin to trust that we would know and receive your blessing so that we can give you authority in our lives in increasing ways, so that we can do that with others. And I pray that you would use us as the church in this culture in remarkable and ongoing ways beyond what we could ask or imagine. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.